Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Don't know if you are someone that likes to save a few bucks. I mean, most people do, but, you know, not everyone. Some people still like to go out shopping and buy it at the expensive places for whatever reason, but that's okay. I can tell you uh, there are probably more or at least as many who like to save money because uh, Dollarama is now opening, planning to open 70 new stores across Canada next year. They also opened 65, I believe it was, this year. This is a boom time for discount stores in this country. Bruce Winder is a retail analyst. He's an advisor. He is an author. He's of a book, uh, Before, During, and After COVID-19. Uh, he, is, uh, he joins us now. Bruce, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the program. Hey, thank you for doing this. So is it a fair uh, guess, a fair estimation that the success or the health of the dollar store industry is directly proportional to the lack of health of the economy generally? Yeah, I think that's a fairly, uh, fairly accurate statement. You know, if you think back to the last sort of recession we had, you know, it hit in the U.S. in 2008, 2009. And then kind of hit us a little later, you know, that's when Dollarama really, really soared. And, uh, you know, they haven't done bad since then, but they really do well. They accelerate during uh, during times that are tough economically for obvious reasons. People need to stretch their dollar, like you mentioned on the intro. Well, and, and the amazing thing about this is somehow people always seem to find these places. I don't know that I've ever seen a commercial or seen an ad for them. But I guess just the name, if things are tough, that sounds like a place where you're going to save a buck. Yeah, it's a really unique business model that's different than, you know, the Canadian tires of the world or the Lululemons of the world. They really don't do any advertising. They don't discount their products, um, you know, and they, they often take uh, locations that aren't, you know, sort of the best locations. They're great for them, but not great for everyone. You know, they might be in the basement of a, of a mall or something like that. But you know what? They're a low-cost operator. They've got uh, really nice lighting. It's fun to shop there. They've got low-priced items. The packaging's really nice. And uh, you know what? You can you can walk in with a $20 bill and walk out with a whole bunch of stuff, and it makes you feel good, especially in these times. It, you know, there are a lot of people who still, I think, believe in the concept you get what you pay for. I think most people probably, Bruce, feel that way that, you know, if you're going to buy something that's a really good quality, it's going to last. And yet, for whatever reason, is it just that things are tough and people are willing to say, well, if I have to buy another one later, I, I will? Because I, you have to know when you go in here, and this isn't an insult, you have to know you're not buying the highest quality stuff. And yet, it seems very appealing right now. Yeah, and there's a bit of a difference between quality and specification. And that's sort of where Dollarama, I think, has done a good what job. What do you mean by that? Qu- Well, quality is sort of like consistency of production. You know, if I buy 10 of these, five of them don't work. That's poor quality. Specification is the thickness of the metal, the plastic, you know, how many gizmos, 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 yeah, you got me, Um, you know, are on the product. So if you kind of strip it down and make it basic, it's still a quality item, but it's just lower specification and lower cost. And I think you're right. A lot of people say, you know what? All I really need is that 2 or $3 item. I don't need to spend 10 on this. And, yeah, if it does happen to break, I can buy another few of them before I have to spend 10 on the same item at somewhere else. I can't help but think that we, we, we go through phases, don't we, with these? Like what we go through waxes and wanings because yep. once upon a time – 
we didn't have Dollarama, but we had Byway. Was it not basically the same thing just back in the 80s or 70s, and then it sort of faded away, and then this took its place? We've always had something like this. No, that's a good point. You're right. We've had we've had Byway, we've had Bargain Herald, you know, sand yes. stores, depending on where you are. Um, and I think, you know, um, maybe one of the differences is that Dollarama doesn't focus a lot on, on clothing. They have some clothing, but they don't focus as much on clothing as those stores. Those stores had a lot of clothing. Um, and, um, you know, clothing is a real tough business. It's high margin, but consumers are really uh, fickle. And uh, Dollarama has done a really good job. They just keep it simple. They also have small products, like small packages. So imagine if you're a student, okay, or you're a single person watching your money, or if you're a senior, you know, you can get small pack sizes that are very economical. And they're all about household staples, you know, and that's really, yeah. I think, where they, where they picked up the, uh, the business. Well, and where they seem to be really clever, uh, and full marks to them for this, is it's things like, as you say, staples. Like, if I need a spatula... I can go and buy one for a dollar or maybe two now at the dollar store, and it's fine. Or I can go to somewhere that's a little fancier and pay 15 And do I really need a $15 spatula if one that's $2 is going to work just as well? Maybe not as well made, but it's going to work for as long as I need it. Yeah, and that, that's, really, that's really what's happened. Your point is great. I mean, that, that's the value proposition that Dollarama offers in a nutshell is that savings. And that's why... For very basic items or people who are economically challenged, you know what? You don't need to go to Walmart, maybe. You just go to Dollarama, right? You know, you can buy things cheaper there every day, and you can get by on a lot less money. So it's a, it's a brilliant strategy. And with so many people losing their job and, you know, interest rates high, inflation's high, you can see why a lot of people are flocking to Dollarama. Now, I, without sounding, I don't want to sound elitist here, but I think for a while there, again, back in the 70s or 80s, it may have been seen as lower whatever to shop at Byway as opposed to somewhere else. Is there oh, yeah, still sure. any stigma? Is there any stigma to going and say, hey, I shop at the dollar store? It seems like that's not there anymore. No, I don't think it's really there anymore. It's not unlike, you know, people used, if you went to a thrift store back in the 70s and 80s and bought used clothing, people would look down at you. Now it's a badge of honor. A lot of young people are going to thrift shops. They save the environment and they save a ton of money. So things have really changed now, especially with youngsters. They realize that value is important. And, you know, it's hard to get a really good job. It's hard to make a, a huge wage. And housing costs are up and everything. So they're, they have no shame in, in really trying to save money. And I think that's a good thing. So here's the, the thing now. So we, we know the economy is where it is right now. And so we see dollars, Dollarama investing and going to open 70 next year, 65 this year. But we've mentioned Byway a few times and you Bargain Heralds and other ones that have come and gone. Is there something different about the model that they have now that we should believe that in, let's say, 10 years from now, there's still going to be a thousand or whatever dollar amas? Or is this the kind of thing that, you know, it's, it's inevitable that when the economy gets better again, this is going to go back on the, on the downside. A bunch of these are going to close. Yeah, no, I think, I think this has some staying power, you know, because if you look at uh, income equality and income disparity, you know, it, it's getting bigger and bigger, and there's just more people who are struggling. And that, that's not going to go away anytime. Even when the economy gets better, you know, these people will do a little better, but not that much better. So I think that Dollarama is going to be around for a while. You know, what I could see happening, though, is someone, believe it or not, coming in underneath Dollarama with even a lower price point. 
Like when Dollar Tree first started in Canada, everything was a buck twenty-five. So you know you could get something like that. One of the other monsters from the U.S., like Dollar General, who's massive, they have like seventeen thousand stores there, and they do like thirty billion dollars. If they ever decided to take on Canada, you know they might be able to do it cheaper and faster and better than Dollarama, right? So I think as yeah. Dollarama sneaks upward, I think they, there might be someone coming underneath. Could be. I mean, look. I mean, we didn't used to have Walmart in Canada. We had we had uh, department stores, and I think Walmart slid in and sort of stole some of that thunder underneath them. So you know, you you may be absolutely right that someone could could see an opportunity if if they want to. If there's, I mean, I don't know. Is there enough margin with the Canadian dollar and everything else? Is there enough margin for someone to go even lower? Well, there could be. I mean, it wouldn't be easy, definitely. But depending on the items, and remember, if you get a big American company. <laughs> They buy so many products that their price is so low from China or from other suppliers that they might be able to slide in and make it work. You never know. Who knows? Or maybe the used product market will start to eat at some of this, too. Bruce Winder. Uh, with Bruce Winder. He is a retail analyst. You can buy his book, Retail, Before, During, and After COVID-19. Bruce, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, no problem. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Grab a piece of paper. And make a couple predictions. I asked you how many new federal government employees you think the liberals have hired since they came into office in 2015, and how much extra we are spending as a country on the federal bureaucracy since 2015 when they came into power. Well, here's your answer. 80,000 New federal employees have been hired in that time. Eight zero thousand, eighty thousand, and we are now paying an extra hundred and fifty-one billion dollars a year to run government than we did in two thousand fourteen, fifteen, the year before the Trudeau government was elected. That, those are big, big, big numbers. Sahir Khan is an executive vice president with the Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy joins me now. Sir, thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. This is, uh, when I saw these numbers at first, I actually almost thought it was a typo. These are extraordinary numbers when you realize that many people have been added to the federal payroll and it's costing us that much. It's fair to say they're extraordinary, but we've also been living in extraordinary times. So, some of this is reflecting kind of uh, the COVID pandemic when the government really had to hire in a hurry. And we saw kind of explosive growth for, for a period of time. But when we start to unpack these numbers, there's kind of two things that are happening. There's the pandemic and, and whether that kind of winds itself out and, 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 and the, the employee reduction, you know, starts, numbers start to go down. And kind of the longer term growth in spending that we've seen since this local government was elected. And it's kind of worth kind of unpacking the two in separate tracks. Okay, so let's talk for a second about the idea that you just suggested about as this winds down, do you see a likelihood of government reductions in staffing? Because we just generally don't see that. It seems as though once you get a government job, you're in there for as long as you want. Can you see a realistic possibility that tens of thousands of federal employees go away? Well, you know, we've had some history. In the program review, when there was a bit of a fiscal crisis, the Cretier-Martin tandem actually cut the public service by almost a third. So we've seen situations where that's happened. In this case, you know, the parliamentary budget office put out a report kind of talking about the growth of the public service. And a lot of the jobs actually went into DND and the RCMP, 
um, where you know there's been demand and, and the art, you know D and D's having you know real struggle recruiting, so their numbers actually really need to go up. I, I'm with you. I think it's hard that you know once you've hired people to actually reduce those numbers, particularly you know after the crisis. I would also suggest that we haven't really seen an HR plan from this government that says, you know, do we have people in the right place? Because they're short IT people, and they have, you know, probably a lot of extra people in areas that are, you know, going to be subject to automation and, and other forces. So, yeah, there's a there's a bit of rigidity when when you do get into the public service, it's hard for them to shrink. So. There's no question about that. But I think the reality is that some of this is going to eventually taper off through attrition. They'll let people retire. They won't hire them back. And you'll have some of that kind of post-COVID hangover kind of taper off. I think the real issue is that the state has gotten bigger since the Liberal government got elected. And there are more programs, there's more spending, and they need more people to deliver that. And clearly, look, I don't think anyone is going to take issue with the fact that COVID threw wrenches into all kinds of plans and more people were probably hired to deal with some of those things. I guess to hear the one thing that a lot of people who are hearing these numbers probably are thinking, at least I did when I first heard this, is we've heard so many things in recent years about programs, government programs, that aren't working well. You know, people couldn't get passports and People couldn't get this, and you know the airline, and and it seems as though if you're hiring eighty thousand extra people, you would like to believe that that means things are going to be working really, really, really well. It seems to have gone the opposite way. Well, Scott, it's an excellent point because one of the things that we haven't seen is a fiscal review done by the government in eleven years. So, twenty twelve was the last time we saw a review was the Har- the draft program the Harper government, but. It- and you know, prior to that, we saw liberal governments do reviews, Paul Martin, the Cretier government. This government had committed to in its last political platform to do a review, and we've seen very tentative steps. They did announce a bunch of a 3% across-the-board spending cuts. They're going to cut travel. They're going to cut consultants. They're going to take unspent money, lapsed money, or, or unspent authorities, and they're going to cut that as well. Uh, so they are, they are pulling back. There's no question they're pulling back, and they're trying to, you know, re- regain some of their, you know, the fiscal bona fides that they could be good stewards. But the reality is if they don't generate results and they're not examining whether programs work or not, it's hard to rebuild confidence with Canadians that the spending is getting the results. You can quibble about how much spending and whether people want dental care, whether they want, you know, the child care or the child benefit. But the reality is Canadians also want results for the spending. And without a review, you know, we can't have that confidence that the government's spending the money well. And I think that matters just as much as the level of spending. Do, do you believe that there is a, this is always the tricky one, do you believe there's a public appetite to cut back? Because there are people, and, and I mean, look, their, their position may be very uh, honorable, but there are people who say, look, we don't want to cut anybody. We don't want people to not have a job. We, we need to do all these things. It, it, are there, is there enough of a public appetite to say, yeah, okay, we don't want people to lose their jobs, but holy cow, we have a lot of people working for the government. Surely we can get by with a few fewer. Well, you know, one of the things you got to keep, keep in mind is, you know, we, we think of the public service based in Ottawa, but the majority of public servants are actually outside of Ottawa. So right. it affects everybody. And I think the real issue, your, your, your point's well taken. There's an entrenched interest for every spending program that we know. I've been involved in the cut side of it when I was in government and worked on a number of spending reviews. And, you know, anytime you want to cut a program or cut a service, there's a loud 
voice that, that, that will oppose you. Right. And after and the crisis, people will die. Crisis, people will die. Right. Oh, I've heard that many times. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, you know, and, and I think we, we know that after the crisis, it's really hard for governments to make these choices. And in the 90s, Canada had a crisis, and the Crescent government had to respond, and it did so in a way that was so effective that we benefited from this fiscal structure through the Harper years. And even the Trudeau government, as much money as they spent, they remained fiscally sustainable because, some, because of the very hard decisions that Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin made in the 90s. And the risk is this, this stuff is a slippery slope. When you're not examining the base of spending, when you start to get a little soft in the midsection, um, you know, as a government, you, you get a little less responsive to issues around performance. It makes it harder to make, uh, if you can't make small cuts, then you can't make big cuts. So I think this, the first step would be for this government to kind of commit to what they said in the platform and do an across-the-board spending review, make sure the programs are working. It's the first step. And, you know, a lot of this, uh, the growth of the public service, you can deal with through attrition, allow early retirement, uh, make sure you've got the right people in the right places. Uh, you know, the numbers by themselves don't tell the whole story. D&D is still struggling on recruiting. They don't have enough people, you know, in the military for all the missions that they, they need to do. But I think the quality of spending, the impact, the results, that's job one for a government. They've got to make sure they've got a handle on it. And the government still has an opportunity to do that before the next election. Yeah, and look, this is not a uh, – the amazing thing about this is this is one of the stories that often is deemed to be political – the last government that really did this, as you alluded to, was Paul Martin. I mean, it was not – people might think, oh, well, it's just a conservative government that's always going to come in and do this. No, it was a liberal government that really did the cutting last time and was really is, – is the word ruthless fair? I don't know. I think probably. But they – it was a – it's not necessarily a specific color of government that has to do this. You're absolutely right. And it, it doesn't have to be political. Performance is everybody's business. And, and making sure that the fiscal house is in order is everybody's business, regardless of political stripe. And I think if you're a progressive government, uh, you, you, you kind of have a higher bar to achieve because you're not arguing that you want a smaller state, a smaller government doing less. You're arguing that you want the government to be able to help people more. And I think you've got a higher burden to prove that you're doing that. You're spending the money well, efficiently and effectively. And that's how you build confidence in people. It's not political. Sahir Khan, Executive Vice President of the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Like you, I can remember, you know, when my friends wanted to call me to go ride bikes or play or whatever else when we were kids. Yeah, you would call home or they would call you or they would ride over and knock on your door. Now, that seems just so quaint, almost, the idea that there was a time when there were only certain ways and certain opportunities to contact you. Yeah. You know, phones were attached to a family or a house. The the concept of a personal phone, one number, one person, where you could reach out directly to an individual was absolutely unheard of. We had, you know, I I had a brother and a sister and two parents, and there were five of us in the house, one, one phone. Um, it sat in, you know, in the kitchen um, yep. with a big, long, curly cord. And that's, yeah, and probably that's one line, right? One exactly. line. So if someone was on it, that was it. 
That's right. And, you know, and too bad for that. And when people called you, if you were on the phone, they got a busy signal, which I, you know, I heard, I heard a busy signal for the first time a few months ago in years. And frankly, it took me a few seconds for it to sort of chime in what it was. It was like, wait, I haven't gotten one of those in ages. Oh, that's what it is. Okay. Yeah. And, and I mean, back then, and I was, again, I, I, when I was reading the story and thinking about where we've come, I mean, it was, I don't know if it's necessarily technology, but the height of, you know, back then, of what we really needed in our house was to have one of those extra long phone cords so you could go from the kitchen into the living room. That was like, wow, we can now leave the kitchen to talk to someone and sit on the couch as opposed to standing beside wherever it was. And then, and then when the time came that we got call waiting, oh my good, or, or, or the second line so that someone could call and it would ring while you were on the line and you didn't just block the whole thing when one person was on the phone. These were amazing at least to me, they were at the time, they were amazing. Nothing like what we're at now, but all of these little incremental things just were so huge to us. They were and they are. And what I find fascinating and one of, about technology and one of the reasons why it's sort of become my chosen career path is because we, we, we almost mark time by when these technologies appear in our lives. It's, that's kind of like how we map out how we've gotten older, uh, and you know, important milestones are often marked by the introduction of new technologies. We remember where we were when you know mom and dad brought home the first you know VCR, or when we got our yeah, oh yeah computer, our, our first laptop, and all of these things are important milestones. My kids laugh because they hear our stories and they seem quaint. But I always tell my kids, wait a second, one day you will have children and you will, the same thing will happen to you. Their technology will seem like science fiction. The technology that you're using today to them will seem very quaint and old fashioned. And that's the way it's always supposed to go. We're always supposed to look back a couple decades and go, those were the days. I still remember the very first movie that we ever rented on the first rented VCR beta, I guess, at the time. Like, when that, again, and why would I ever remember but for the fact that it was fame, by the way, the movie, which I'm not necessarily <laughs> proud of. But, but the fact that it was such a big deal made me remember what that movie was that we had got. It's, it's, it really, it's, it, go ahead. It really was. And, you know, like, like uh, my, our kids still talk about going to the video store, which, of course, is no longer a thing. Saturday night, we dress them in pajamas and bring them on down, and everyone would get to pick a movie. Uh, and, you know, the concept of, you know, be kind, please rewind, which, of course, doesn't exist anymore. But, uh, yeah. you know, those are important memories, important touchstones for them, even though the technologies that formed them are long gone. And I keep telling our, you know, I tell our kids and I remind anyone who will listen that we continue to make those, those, those memories today that even today as you get a new phone or you download a new app or, you know, you bring in some new technology into the house or your car or a wearable, you get a smartwatch. That too is, it's, it's subtly reshaping our lives. We don't even think about it. I got my first smartwatch a few years ago and now the concept of wearing a watch that isn't connected, that isn't tracking my activities and giving me a snapshot of my fitness level every single day, every minute of every day. It just seems so weird to me. I have a whole bunch of watches gathering dust because I don't know when I'm going to wear them. To me, that's a good thing. Technology advances the state of the art and gives us really cool new things to look forward to, even if even just a few years later, we look back and go, oh, isn't that sweet? What do you think is, and, and this is a really broad question because there could be a million different answers, but what do you think the cell phone changed the most? Is it just the fact that we are always now all connected or is there something else that's even a, a bigger thing that it did 
Yeah, I think it, you know, it changed communication from something that was asynchronous that, you know, you to to something that was immediate. And so we don't wait for anything anymore. The, you know, the, the, the attention deficit society that we live today where, you know, we get a notification on our phones and suddenly like Pavlov's dog, we have to respond. That started with the cell phone. It was the cell phone that broke down those barriers. The, the concept of leaving a message for somebody and then having them call you back hours or days later, uh, that just doesn't exist anymore. And so, you know, it's, it's a good thing because when you need to reach someone, you know, if my kids are out and they need me right now, they can get a hold of me. Um, so from that perspective, it's a positive. But in a whole lot of other ways, there's a bit of a dark side to it, too. And, you know, it's like tech, all technologies, they give and they take away. Uh, and, I, and you know, sometimes I kind of wish I could go back to those days where I could sort of, you know, leave the phone, you know, in, in the house and just leave without any technology at all and just be completely disconnected like I was when I was a kid. We forget how it's changed us in the interim. And I think sometimes we really do need to sort of have the power to turn it all off, even if it's just for a little bit. I, I think you're 100% right on that part the, the, about the about the pro and the con. I mean, we all can find things about it that's amazing, but you're right. There is a simple is not necessarily bad, and it was much more simple once upon a time. Now there were downsides to it. I mean, if there was an emergency, it wasn't always easy to find someone, and so you know, mm-hmm. like there there are certainly good things that have come from this kind of technology, but. I think an awful lot of people would echo exactly what you just said, which is I wouldn't mind being able to jump into a time machine for a certain period of time and be back to when I didn't have one of these things. Yeah. And, and, you know, and exactly like, and, but then still knowing full well that we could, you know, sort of come back to the present day and sort of yep, get yep. all the magic and cool stuff. I, what I found interesting was Martin Cooper was asked, you know, what, you know, what would he like for the next stage of the of development of cell phones? And he said something really prescient and, uh, I mean, interesting, was that he wishes that they were simpler because there's a whole sort of sliver of society that even though 95-plus percent of us now all have a cell phone, there's still a somewhat marginalized minority that do not, or they have these devices, but they they don't find them easy to use. Um, you know, part of it is, is demographics. Uh, part of it is not. Part of it is I know people of all ages who wrestle, struggle with their smartphones uh, and find yeah. them too complex. And it would be interesting to sort of dial that back a little bit and maybe come up with better ways to integrate the technology into our lives so that we're not constantly staring at a screen and we're not constantly frustrated because we can't get what we want out of our smartphone there still is room for improvement did you have you seen there was a a very fun um not a meme it was i think it was a, a printed ad that was done a little while ago and it pointed out all the things that we used to have to have that are now <laughs> on our cell phone like there was a video camera and there was a still camera and there was the telephone and there was the the computer or the typewriter and there was a fax machine and like and it is amazing to consider not just the technology that has allowed us to be in communication all the time but all the various things now that we used to have to have separate devices for that are all now sitting in our back pocket oh yeah it's funny that that means sort of it keeps going around and around and around it often revolves around an old Radio Shack uh, ad. Yes, yes, and, yes. And you, and you sort of look at all the things that they used to sell, and now basically all those capabilities are built into even you know the cheapest uh, smartphone. And I find that fascinating. And the photographer in me, of course, is a big fan of that because most of my photos now, even though I have 
expensive cameras, I still take most of my pictures with my phone, but it's because it's always with me. And so it has democratized technology. It's always with you. You always have the tech equivalent of a Swiss Army knife in your pocket. So no matter where you are, it's your choice. You can leave it in your pocket for the entire time, but when you need it, you know you can always reach in there, pull it out, get it done, and then put it back away. And to me, that's very empowering. It means that when I leave my house, I still have the capability to be as productive outside the house as I am inside the house, outside the office, inside the office. And, you know, quite frankly, I, I look back to the last three years of the pandemic, we would not have been able to survive the pandemic if not for all of these mobile devices and the networks that feed them. So we, did. we really do live in a miraculous age. Yeah, not like you did. And, I, and you know, we were talking on the show yesterday about the fact that, you know, the first Canadian astronaut chosen to orbit the moon was named yesterday. Remember reading years ago that the first, the computer that was on Apollo 11 that got Neil Armstrong to the moon was less powerful than the typical iPhone. Yeah, and which, uh, and it, I mean, which, which I love, and I, I, it really does illustrate that you don't need the most advanced technology or you know the, the fastest processors or the biggest computers in order to do incredible things. And some of the some of my most uh, you know enjoyable experiences with technology have always been on older devices that I kind of, you know, co-opted to do more than they were probably designed to do. And that's the joy of technology. It isn't, you know, I have the biggest and best with the biggest and brightest screen. It's I used it to do some really cool stuff that I couldn't have otherwise done. And the Apollo computers were a perfect example of that. And frankly, it was society's real first exposure to the amazing things that computers could do. And the personal computer revolution that, that it followed in the 70s and 80s, owed a lot to those programmers, hardware developers, engineers, computer scientists who developed this incredible technology for the space program. And, of course, Canada has always been, we fight outside our weight class when it comes to developing these global technologies. And as a result, we're, you know, that's why we're on uh, this mission, because we're respected globally for what we bring to the table when it comes to tech. One real downside, uh, I would suggest, is there is, there is more and more research that, that the having this computer in your pocket and we're talking about the 50th anniversary of the first cell phone call i don't think you can separate that from where we are now that mm-hmm. having this technology in our pocket having something that does everything for us there's more and more evidence that we are our brains are withering a little bit and not to the point where you know when i say withering that's maybe too strong a word but it's having a negative effect on our ability to remember on our memories on on other things like that, again, you talked about the fact that with every plus there is a minus. I can mm-hmm. tell you that one thing that I am amazed by is that I can remember my two best friends' phone numbers from when I was five years old. Ward and Ted. I could tell you their phone numbers right now. I can remember my phone number at home. I don't know my wife or my children's phone number right now because all I do is go on my phone and press their names and it dials. I'm going to shake my head, Scott, because I, 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 the exact same thing. I'm thinking of my best friends from childhood. I memorized their numbers. I still remember remember them to this day. My wife and kids' numbers. My wife, I know. My kids, I do not, because they're all programmed in. And you know, Albert Einstein used to say, you know, why would I memorize my phone number? It's already in the phone book. Um, and right, to a certain exactly. extent, yeah. So. So we, so you know, yeah, we can't memorize our numbers, or we've chosen not to because we have tools that allow us to have, you know, communicate more easily. But what that does, and as as much as I lament that, sometimes I feel a little bit too dependent on it. 
it frees us up to do other stuff, higher order thinking, higher order processing. So instead of spending my time and my energy memorizing rote things, um, I can actually focus on applied learning and thinking and insight and analysis. And so, you know, let the technology do the heavy lifting for all the basic stuff. Then that frees us up to do all the other cooler stuff. And I'm okay with that as long as we sort of keep that in mind as we, and as long as we keep pushing ourselves to do more smart stuff, technology notwithstanding. There are people, um, we only got a couple of minutes left here. There are people like Steve Jobs, for example, who um, I'm not exactly sure how he visualized the future, but he seemed to have a pretty good grasp on, on where things were going to go and what would be useful because there's a ton of inventions that people make that might be fantastic inventions, but they serve no practical purpose and we don't really need them. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think that he or anyone else who was actually involved in the early makings of cell phones, do you, do you believe that anybody really visualized this where we are now not specifically but even the concept i mean I, I i'm thinking like maxwell smart and get smart they may have had a shoe phone but i don't know that they really thought that was going to be where we really were once upon a time or eventually yeah uh, what i what i wouldn't give to have an audience with martin cooper he's 94 years old now to sort of ask him that same very question i don't think they could have visualized it i think they they might have seen portable phones, wireless phones in the hands of everyone, and that we would all be speaking with each other. I don't think they envisioned smartphones with touch screens and apps, that these would be basically miniaturized computers. I think that was beyond the vision of the time. Um, but at the same time, I look at I look at today's smartphones and I think, wow, 20, 30 years from now, we're going to look at these and, 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 you know, we won't even recognize what they are because what we'll have then will be so far beyond. And I think that's the fun of technology is that you can project as much as you can into the future, but it still has the capacity to surprise you, throw you a bunch of curves, take you places you didn't even intend to go. And what I love about smartphones is that as the, the designs continue to evolve, uh, a lot of it came from science fiction. A lot of the engineers yes. and scientists and engi- you know who designed them grew up on Star Trek and Star Wars, and they you know watched the movies and uh, bought the toys and all that, and then that became their design. You know, the, the tricorder, we owe a lot to the tricorder because that really is today's smartphone. And from where I sit, I'm really glad I was a Trekker when I was a kid. Hmm. Yeah, and, and someone just actually sent me a text, and they said, you know, it's a lot cheaper now because just for calls at least, you know, once upon a time, long distance, I mean, you would only call people if it was in the cheap time. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, But you know what? I don't know. On, on balance, has technology made our life less expensive or more expensive? Because, you know, when you used to buy a phone at Simpsons, it was probably $12. <laughs> uh, now it's $1,200. But then the costs that go along with it, because there's so many things on there, you don't have to buy those other things. Does it make life cheaper? Does it make it more expensive? Um, I think it, it, it certainly creates expenses that we didn't have before, but it also gets rid of others. So I think it's a bit of a wash there. But I think really I look at not just cost but also value. In other words, what's the value of being able to FaceTime family half a world away? Um, Amazing, isn't I, it? I can't, yeah, I can't put a dollar figure on that, but I do know it's probably close to priceless. And I think that's an investment worth making. So if it costs me a little more to have a smartphone and a data plan, I'm okay with that because it will do things I couldn't do. Yeah, and, and we got to go. But, I mean, that you mentioned a few minutes ago about we couldn't have got through COVID. I mean, think of my, my parents were are, are both gone now. They were both alive, though, during COVID. And I think of we couldn't see them most of the time in person. 
but how many people like me got to spend time with their parents during COVID by FaceTime that we otherwise could not have done. And, yeah, it, you know, yeah. it's just, when, when there are downsides to a lot of technology, bullying and, and mental health issues and things like that. And I'm not disputing that for a second. And I believe wholeheartedly that those things are real, but there are also really amazing things. Exactly. And, you know, and I always do my best to focus on the positive, recognize the negative, and at least sort of have coping strategies to minimize the impact. But I think we owe it to ourselves to not stick our heads in the sand and really say, hey, let's take advantage of this and, you know, do the best that we can. Um, And then hopefully the return on investment is as positive as it can be. That is Carmen Levy. He's a tech analyst and a journalist and a digital marketer and a guy we love talking to about anything tech or digital. Uh, Carmen, took you for a long time today. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.